want to say uh, thank you to Matt for last week, uh, filling in. Um, amazing job. Well done once again, Matt, um, for that. Uh, it's been great to have him here. Um, uh, he's been uh, a longtime friend and a blessing to our family and hopefully uh, a blessing to yours as well as he um, jumps into community here with us. And so thank you, Matt. Let me ask you a question. Uh, when you think about strong spiritual figures in your life, currently in your life now or uh, formerly in your life, in your past, who comes to mind? Like if I were to ask you, who is that one person who stood out to you growing up that you knew loved God, right? That, that person in your life that you thought was the most spiritual person. Who was that person who took you to church on Sundays? Who was that person who taught you to pray? Who was that person that read the stories from the Bible to you? Who was it in your life that you knew was following Jesus? I bet that most of us would think back that there is some woman, some female person that comes to mind for you. Maybe it was your mom. Maybe it was your grandma. Maybe it was your Sunday school teacher or your children's pastor. For me, when I look back, there is this one person who comes to mind. Now, I had a handful of spiritual women in my life growing up, but there was one who stood out. And anyone who ever met her knew she loved God. She was talented. She was gifted. She was a natural leader. She could communicate the story of God like no other. And all these things were so attractive, yet very intimidating for the guys who knew her. But everyone knew she was going to be doing great things for God. And with all of that, on top of all of that, she was beautiful. And I remember saying to, to some of the guys, man, I am going to marry her. And, and everyone was like, no way she would ever marry you. And, and I'm like, well, what's that supposed to mean? You know, you know um, she, they're like, well, you know, she's probably going to be a nun. You know, she's going to, there's no guy that's going to be good enough for her, which was and totally is true. Not, not the nun part, but being good enough. But, but I was always up for a challenge. And so when they were like, there's no way she'd marry you. I was like, guys, hold my drink, right? <laughs> eight, eight years later, I married her. In other words, she settled for me. But without a doubt, when it came to spirituality, I I married up, right? But I bet for many of you, just like me, when you think of God, there are more women than men that come to mind. Women that have influenced your image of God. It just seems that women are naturally bent towards spirituality, which is why on Mother's Day, we have to bring in extra chairs, right? Moms are like, I, I just want to be in church with my family, right? It's, it's Mother's Day. I don't want any gifts. Don't buy me anything. Just go to church with me, right? And, and on Father's Day, dads are like, I just don't want to have to go to church, right? You know, buy me, buy me golf clubs, buy me a fishing pole, buy me tickets to the game. Just don't make me go to church, right? So, which is why we serve chicken wings and steak kebabs on Father's Day to get you guys here, right? But when we, when we talked about image of God, and we, we opened up the, the series with this a few weeks ago, uh, we talked about where do we go to, to, to find our images of God? And the answer is, we go to places that are familiar to us. I think if we were honest, we would all say that when we imagine what God looks like, we think of him in human terms, like God is this giant human. 
And then from there, we begin to describe God being like the things that are significant in life for us. And then those images of God tell us a ton about what we believe and think about life. So, for instance, if you have an image of God as judge, chances are that you view judgment and justice as very important parts of life. Like those things are ultimate for you. If your image of God is that of friend, chances are that relationships are ultimate for you. If your image is that of grace and mercy, then those things most likely are significantly valuable in your life. Which is why this is an important part of our discussion. And Matt alluded to this a little bit last week. That the writers of our sacred text, our scriptures, often portrayed God as a woman or with feminine qualities. From the very first chapter in Genesis, you have uh, where it says the divine, the image of the divine was created both female and male. That the image of God was found in both. In Deuteronomy 32, it says that God who gave birth to you. And Isaiah 49 says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? In Job, it says, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? In the New Testament, John says, those who believe are born of God. Everyone who loves is born of God. In Acts 17, it says, in God we live and move and have our being. And then in Romans 8, it says that all creation groans in the pains of childbirth. And the list goes on and on from there. But the fact that our writers of our ancient sacred text would ascribe womanhood to God would suggest that womanhood was ultimate for them, right? That it was significant to the image of the divine. But something happened in the view of womanhood and the value and the importance of womanhood was lost. And just as we crucified the divine, we've mistreated and abused the gifts and the things of the divine. And over time, we've reduced women to less than. Not only in scripture, but in the church as well. The role, sorry, maintenance. That the role of women in the church has been diminished over time. Where men have dominated and controlled as women have listened quietly. Not everywhere, but in most places. The role of woman has been reduced to only that of potluck coordinator, right? Or occasional Sunday school teacher, or the cleaning lady, or the purchaser of the Easter lilies, right? Christianity, for the most part, has been a bunch of guys telling a bunch of non-guys what to do and how to do it. Which is the opposite of oneness, and unity, and togetherness, with, which with both Jesus and Paul commanded in the church, and as much as people say the church should focus on the individual soul or, or people, uh, the individual person, and then we should stay out of politics and out of cultural issues, Jesus himself focused strongly on those cultural and political issues. He spent a great deal of time righting some of the wrongs in our society. And the church should take seriously the mistreatment of women and serve to right a wrong. Which means there has to be some undoing of some old ideas and returning to the ancient idea 
of oneness in Christ. That no matter who you are, you belong here. And I would go as far as to say that I believe perhaps Jesus' greatest social and cultural impact was in the way he treated women. Because he entered into a time and culture where women were viewed and treated less than. Where their value was connected in two ways. That of their, their husband, who they were married to. Or that they had children, their, their motherhood. And Jesus comes in and he makes women heroes of the story. Where it's women who are first to witness the empty tomb in the resurrected Jesus. Where to a woman, Jesus for the first time reveals that he is in fact the Messiah. Then to his close friends, Mary and Martha, standing outside the tomb of Lazarus. And Jesus, for the first and only time, declares himself the resurrection and life. Where Jesus breaks with tradition and law and allows himself to be touched by a woman that culture had declared unworthy. Where he goes out of his way to undo the shame and the guilt that was placed on women. Allowing himself to be touched by a woman that culture deemed unclean. Where Jesus brings forth this radical transformation of the value and treatment of women. And communicates a message of oneness and equality. Which is why I suggested a couple weeks ago that Jesus may have been a feminist. And I got the feeling that many of you were uncomfortable with that. And that's good. That's okay. Because I'm not totally comfortable with that idea either. Have you ever had a word in your vocabulary that you used and then later realized that you were using it? Like you had the wrong definition of it? Like you were using it incorrectly? Kind of embarrassing, right? You know? For me, personally, I mean, confession here. Grits. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> I hear you. When I, when I grown up, uh, grits to me were small, hard, chewy white pieces of the sausage that mom cooked for breakfast, right? They were like the grit of the sausage, the grit and the gristle that you spit out, right? So as a kid, when I heard that people ate bowls of grits, this is what I was envisioning, right? That they were literally eating these bowl of white, hard pieces of sausage, you know? And it was totally disgusting to me, right? And so I never wanted grits. Listen, to this day... I have never had grits. Now, the reason, the reason I don't, stop. The reason I don't, the reason I don't eat them today is not because I still think they're pieces of hard sausage, but it's because I'm keeping myself pure. It's, it's the last thing that hasn't been tainted by the South. So hear, hear me out. I also think they're very offensive to cream of wheat, right? I like cream of wheat. How many of you like cream of wheat? Okay, and how many of you like cream of wheat? Ah, yeah, all of you. Look at this. We all like cream of wheat. Gotcha. Yeah. So I did some uh, research this week, which means I Googled um, often misused words. And here are some of them. See if you uh, have used these before. One big around here you hear as people hike and trails and come uh, running with snakes and spiders is poisonous versus venomous, right? We know poison is something that you ingest, something you can touch, like, like a, maybe a flower is poisonous or, or a leaf is poisonous and it causes an allergic reaction to you. Venom is what is injected into you by a snake or a spider. You could eat a rattlesnake and not be hurt, possibly. But when you're a bit and you're injected with venom, so there's, snakes aren't poisonous. They're venomous because they inject their poison into you. That, so that's something that maybe you guys didn't know or do know. 
Maybe I was the only one. Ultimate. I used the word ultimate a few times already. Come to find out, ultimate, for the most part, we think means then it's the greatest, it's the best, it's the main thing. Ultimately, in fact, means just the last thing on your list. Like if you were to make a grocery list and you're like, hey, um, we need to go buy chicken, um, steak, and um, uh, milk, and ultimately bacon. Like the reason you went to the store was bacon, right? It was the ultimate thing on your list. That's what ultimate means when you're supposed to use it. Some of you use it differently. How about the word conversate? Anybody use that word? Conversate is like the conjunction between conversation and converse. The problem is, is that converse is already the verb and conversate is not even a word. Like it's not, it's not a word. We say it, but it's converse. Just, just say converse. Don't say conversate. That's not a word. Okay. Don't use it again. <laughs> nauseous, you know, I'm, or I'm, I'm nauseous, right? People say I'm nauseous. Like, oh, that ride made me nauseous or your, your voice is making me nauseous, Jeff. You know, <laughs> you, the feeling that you get is nauseated. You don't get nauseous. You get nauseated. Nauseous is the description of the object. Like my voice may be nauseous, but it, my voice doesn't make you nauseous. It makes you nauseated. So, you, so when you use the word nauseous, it's to describe the object, not the, the feeling that you have. You feel nauseated. How about the word enormity? Like it's giant. It's enormous, right? The enormity, you know, uh, that, that we're having this g- ginormous egg hunt next week. We've been describing that for years. Ginormous egg hunt. It's the enormity of it. I'm thinking it's big. The true definition of enormity, highly immoral or evil, <laughs> which probably makes many people in this community very happy about our egg hunt because that's how they've been describing it for years, that it's highly immoral and evil. So, all right. Irregardless. How many people say Irregardless. Okay, irregardless, not a word. The word is regardless. There's no such thing as irregardless. Like you, without regard is regardless. And you don't add irregardless. So save typing on your fingers. Just just the word regardless. Don't take out irregardless, not a word. How about the word plethora? Anybody heard the word plethora? I always, when I hear this word, I think back to one of my favorite movies, The Three Amigos, right? You know, Guapo is sitting there asking Jefe how many pinatas he has. How do I have a plethora? And he says, yeah, you have a plethora. And he's like, well, what's a plethora? And he doesn't know what it is. Many people don't know what plethora means. Plethora, for some of us, I've said, well, you have a lot of something. You have a bunch of something. It actually means you have more than you need. Like it's like a, kind of a negative of the, what you have. It's you have more than enough. You have more than you need, a plethora. All right, another word that we use that we use kind of wrong sometimes is the word can, right? Like I substitute teach in the, in, in the school system here and I have students 15 times every hour come to me and say, hey, can I go to the bathroom? And what are we supposed to say back to that? Uh, yeah, I believe you can. Yeah, I think it's possible. I think you can go to the bathroom, yes. Because that's what they're asking, if it's possible. They mean to ask, may I go to the bathroom? And then I would say yes or no. But can you? Yes, I believe it's, it's, it's humanly possible. You can go to the bathroom. Like when Jody's up here doing the giving moment, and she says, can you give? We know that it's possible that all of you could give. We're asking you if you will give, right? The big difference, can, will. Possible versus permission. How about literally, right? You know, literally. We believe that's kind of figuratively, right? You know, hey, for example, when I, on, the, on the article I read, it was the, the idea that if you say, hey, man, I literally, I got your back. We think that means is I'm, you know, I'm supporting you. I'm behind you. Which, in fact, it means that, like, if you're holding the guy's spine in your hand, like, I have your back. That's, it literally means that. And so it's not figuratively. It's literally. So when you use that, think that way. And the last one of the ones I read is the word Totally. Now, we get the word total, what it means. It's, you know, total, the sum of something. 
how we use it in sentences is correctly. Like, have you ever said, man, I, man, I was totally surprised or I was, I was totally scared? Well, surprise and scared aren't conditional things. You're either surprised or you're not. You can't be totally surprised. You're either surprised. You can't be totally scared. You're scared or you're not scared. So the way you use totally is incorrect if you put it before something that isn't conditional. So now I know there are some kids in here. I want to the last word. So I want, you might want to cover their ears. But I, what I want to talk about, this word that you're not supposed to say in church. And it's the F word. Okay? Listen here. I, I brought this up a couple weeks ago. Matt mentioned it last week. But it's feminism. All right? Now, I know some of you thought I might be going somewhere else with that. But in my experience, most Christians don't have a problem with that word. They have a problem with this word, though. So. And I know as soon as I said it, for many of you, your defenses went up, right? You know, even now, some of you are, you know, fixing to, to tune me out. And I understand that this is a, for you, some of you, this is a political issue. And I would agree that this is extremely political. If your understanding of politics is the way in which we organize this shared space for the common good, then yes, the treatment of 52% of our population is political. That we share this space with, with women. But political... As this is me going up against who you voted for, that's not what this is. So if you hear me today and you walk away mad, thinking that I'm anti-Trump or I'm too liberal, then you didn't listen. Because that's not the message today. So feel free to call, text me. I had a good friend reach out a couple of weeks ago, right? And that's what this is about. We're journeying together on this. But to say that politics or cultural issues do not belong in the church is to throw away the gospels and everything Jesus said or did. To not think the gospel, the good news, the euangelion, the evangelical, the announcement of victory over the oppressors wasn't political? To announce that there was a new kingdom and a new king when Caesar was king? To say that things like love your enemy, when the empire says kill your enemy, to pretend that that's not political? And how culture and society treats women is not a new issue. But it has been kicked back to the surface recently. But it's been an issue for the entire existence of humankind. How we treat others in this shared place. And I think I know why many of us are bothered by that word. I think for many of you, including myself, you grew up with an incorrect definition for that word. But for good reasons, because that word was misused. That was misrepresented by many. That was abused by others. I like what Rebecca West said when asked about feminism. She says, I myself have never been able to find out precisely what feminist is. I only know that people call me a feminist whenever I express sentiments that differentiate me from a doormat or a prostitute. Listen, friends, I don't know what your experience with that word has been. Maybe it's been negative. Maybe you're completely turned off by that word. Maybe you identify with that word. Either way, for the sake of the series and this message, I presented a working definition for the word feminist and feminism. And here's what it was. The radical notion that women are people. Right? So, one... 
who advocates, and it's not my definition, but I'll take the claps. Um, one who advocates for the political, economic, religious, and social quality for the sexes. Sexes being our biology, the parts that we have. And FYI, this, I wrote this down. In a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate Mother's Day, right? Everyone getting ready for that? You don't like that word? Did you know that Mother's Day began as a protest against war by feminists? So when you celebrate Mother's Day, you're celebrating anti-war protests by feminism. Yeah, so we're all feminists, right? Yeah, so. Mothers were tired of losing their sons to war. And so feminists said, hey, we need a Mother's Day. We need to, we need to protest war. And so that's what that was from. And I'm also aware that the term feminist didn't exist in first century Rome, right? I don't think Jesus, I don't think Jesus would have fully accepted the term feminist because of the baggage that would go along with that description. I don't think Jesus would identify with being a feminist. The same way that there's a ton of baggage that goes with the word Christian or the word evangelical. I do not believe Jesus would have identified with either of those terms as well. You see, Christian wasn't ever even a term used by Jesus or any of his disciples. They were simply known as disciples, as people of the way. And so in first century AD, the era of the patriarch, where men were considered greater than women simply because of parts, Jesus showed up with this revolutionary teaching where he said things like looking at a woman lustfully. Now that's off the table, guys. That's just like adultery. That was radically progressive for his time that men were now responsible for their own thoughts and their own actions and could no longer blame her for what she was wearing in a culture where mosaic law said that it was okay to rape a virgin as long as she was not pledged to another man and that you paid her father 50 pieces of silver because women were just after all sex objects or property And this is where Jesus shows up and he says, instead of teaching our girls to not get raped, we need to teach our boys to not rape. Where uh, where women were told to cover up, Jesus said, the fruit of my spirit is self-control, not fashion control. And forcing modesty on women spoke more to a culture of uncontrolled weak men than promiscuous women. Jesus had a radically progressive message. And so I want to share another story from the Gospels that teaches that message. And back to what I said at the beginning, during this time period, women found their value in one of two ways, in their husband or in their children. And this story connects us to both. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Side note, if you're interested in, uh, I would encourage you to read, it's a four-part series called Discovering Christian Feminism by Julie Clausen. Everyone know what one-hand clapping is? Everyone, can everyone do one-hand clapping? Everyone do it real quick. Just help me out do that. Okay, that's the name of her blog, one-hand clapping. Now you won't forget. See, that's a teacher trick, right, that we do. What was that blog? One-hand clapping. All right, verse, verse 40. It says, now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. 
And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Verse 45, who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not be un- go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Do, don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, do not be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, the, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat, and her parents were astonished. But he ordered them to not tell anyone what had happened. So what's going on in this moment? I'm going to focus mainly on the woman that was healed from bleeding. Um, I'm going to read some things and some uh, pieces of blogs that were written by women. Um, uh, I ask for grace and mercy with women because I have no understanding of this. I had a mom and a sister and a wife and three daughters. um, And I don't pretend to know what's going on sometimes. I mean, I'd pretend to know, but I don't know. Um, but uh, I may m- mumble some things, and so please not be offended by this. Um, uh, guys, if you're f- squeamish or offended, um, I don't care. Leviticus 15. <laughs> Leviticus 15 gives us an entire list of do's and don'ts, right, associated with the, the way of women. And these are some terminology they use, and so the way of women. A woman with a discharge of blood shall be declared unclean and shall be set apart for seven days. Everything she lies or sits on shall also be unclean. Verse 20, Leviticus 15. Anyone that touches her bed or anything that she's been seated on during her period of uncleanliness shall also be unclean until evening and shall be required to ritually bathe. Anyone that touches anything that has been on um, her bed or seat shall be unclean until the evening and shall be required to ritually bathe. Any man that lies with a woman during the time of uncleanness shall also be unclean for seven days and shall be required to ritually bathe. The same law applied for women with any bloody discharge. And the time of separation was called the nidah. It began on the first sign of bloody discharge and continued until the evening of the seventh day for a minimum of 12 days. So 12 days a month, women were separated. Additionally, Jewish women were to sleep in a separate tent and were not allowed to be touched by their husbands or any male for that matter. No handshakes, no pats on the back, no comforting embraces. They do so, uh, to do so meant that their uncleanliness uh, would transfer to him as well. And at the end of their separation, she was required to take a ritual mikvah bath, is what they say, submersion into a ritual pool to symbolize the cleansing of ritual impurity as well as physical. After the mikvah, she was then allowed to re-enter her life, so to speak. Uh, the great Catholic Church, uh, until nine, uh, actually until 600 AD, they had restrictive practices for women. 
uh, until Pope Gregory I in his letter responding to some of these restrictions and questions. And I have that letter here, not the exact letter. That'd be awesome, but this is a copy of it. Um, Augustine asked Pope Gregory at the time, was a woman, was a pregnant woman to be baptized? How long must a woman wait before entering a church after childbirth? During the time of a woman's menstruation, may she enter a church and take communion? And this was the Pope's answer. Why should a pregnant woman not be baptized? It would be ridiculous to see any contradiction between the gift of fertility that she has received from God and the gift of grace received at baptism. Regarding entrance into a church after childbirth, he says she is not to be prohibited. So also regarding the period of menstruation, she is likewise not to be prohibited from entering a church. For he adds, the natural flux that she suffers cannot be imputed to her as a fault. Therefore, it is right that she should not be deprived of the entrance into the church. He too refers to the gospel story and says, We know moreover that the woman suffering from flux all after she had touched humbly the fringe of our Lord's dress was cured immediately. So if this woman may touch our Lord's dress and it is told as a laudable thing, why should a menstruating woman not enter a church? Nor is she to be prohibited from taking communion at this time. If the woman out of veneration of the sacrament does not go, she is to be praised. But if she goes to the communion, she is not to be judged adversely. She has no sin. People see sin where there is none. We all eat when hungry and without sin in doing so, even though it is though through the sin of the first man that we are all hungry. So women, when uh, menstruating, have no sin, for it is natural. So a couple things about this story. First is the, the over-the-top emphasis I think Jesus puts on being touched, right? He's like, who touched me? And some say that this was Jesus wanting a, a public confession of faith, right? Which would make sense for then for Peter to speak up and say, who cares, Jesus? There's a lot of people touching you. You don't really care about, you know, people confessing that they know you, right? That's not really big to you, is it, right? Which, which you know, it would be a very important detail for Peter to know for the upcoming week, right? Can we, do we have to confess that we know you, Jesus? Do you know the story? Peter can denies Jesus three times. All right. So it makes sense. But I don't think that's why, why Jesus was asking the question. I don't think he needed a public confession of faith. I think it was for the religious people in the crowd. Like Jesus knew who touched him. He also knew what the religious people would have thought about that moment, right? Because just a chapter earlier in Luke, we had the scene in Simon the Pharisee's house, right? Where this woman comes in and she, she falls at his feet and she washes his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair and then dumps out perfume on Jesus. And they were like, if he was the Messiah, he wouldn't be letting that woman touch him. And Jesus rebukes them and he asks them, do you see this woman? And so now a chapter later, Jesus is walking with his disciples. This ceremonially unclean woman touches Jesus. And he knows it. And she knows it. But, to, but do they know it? If they found out, what would they, what would they, would that make Jesus unclean? If they found out, would he have to go through the process like the other rabbis? If he didn't go through the process, would he be breaking the law? And now we got Jesus. And so he could have just left it. He could have said, let's just keep going. But instead he says, who touched me? 
And I can imagine the guys, the Pharisees, you know, they're walking with Jesus. They're my man. You know, you really ticked off those Pharisees just a chapter ago, right? And let that woman touch you. And then you called them out for what they were thinking. And then you said that what she did was greater than what they could ever do. And you made that woman, who may or may not have been a prostitute, equal to the religious leaders. Man, I don't think you could do anything else to make those law-loving, fundamentalists more angry, Jesus. And Jesus was like, holdeth my cup. (laughs) Who touched me? Like, come on, Jesus, we got to go. Jairus is waiting. We got to heal his daughter. And Jesus is like, not yet. You forget so easily, guys. The kingdom of God is breaking in now. That this is not something for a later date. It's not something for just on Sunday mornings. Jesus said, are you ready for something new? Are you ready for a fresh move in my spirit? A new idea, a new thought, a new way of living? Listen, church. The universe needs you right now. Culture needs us to respond to what's happening in the moment. And Jesus was touched while walking through a crowd on his way to do something else. Something amazing. He had things to do. But something special had just happened and he was deliberately touched by an unclean woman. She had rules to follow. The men told her that she was unclean and unworthy to be touched or touch anything or anyone else. Nevertheless, she persisted. And she said, no, no more. It ends today. I want to be healed. And Jesus not only heals her, but did you catch it? Immediately brings her into full relationship with the father when he calls her daughter. And it's the only time he uses that name in all the gospels. Daughter, you are healed. Your faith has healed you. Your persistence has been recognized. Daughter, you are healed. And then Jesus praises the faith of a woman who for 12 years wasn't even allowed in the church or in the temple or around other people who had been abandoned and thrown aside now finds her identity as a beloved Daughter of God. And then one last thing about the story is Jesus says, peace be with you. The Hebrew word is shalom, which means wholeness and and completeness. This is not like Jesus saying, hey, peace out. You know, we'll see you later, right? This is not just freedom from this inward anxiety she had. As one author puts it, instead of being defiled by her contact with her, His own touch had proven the more contagious, rendering her pure and whole again. And Jesus restores her place in society and goes even further to elevate her. And another woman said it like this. While this story is sweet and miraculous in and of itself, there is a depth to it that is not understood until we put it into the context of the Nadada. When Leviticus lays out requirements for women with bloody issues, we all assume it's referencing this postpartum bleeding. However, we often forget that the law does not make any concessions for women who bleed because they have medical problems or disorders. That means that this woman had been in a state of perpetual nada for 12 years, left alone in her suffering. She could not conceive. She could not have sexual relationships with her spouse. She could not even be touched. Imagine how after 12 years of bleeding, she may have felt Most of us understand the fatigue and physical pain 
the mental drain we experience when we only bleed for a week and exhausting physically and emotionally. We are moody and anky, achy and tired. And again, this is a woman, not me reading this. I don't say any of these things. I've never felt you've been moody or angry or tired. Um, abnormally heavy and long menstruation that causes enough cramping and blood loss so normal daily activities are almost impossible. The scriptures correctly call it a hemorrhage because the amount of blood loss is significant. This woman suffered for those of 12 years and on top of it had to do it alone, separated and unclean. It wasn't a private, a private struggle either. Surely after 12 years and multiple doctor visits, everyone knew of her struggle and speculated as to what sin she committed to be so cursed. And when you consider what she'd been suffering for all those years, it gives you an entirely new perspective on her situation and how desperate she must have been. Not only was she sick and unhealthy, she was utterly alone. Then there was the issue of her touching Jesus. She was expressly forbidden by Levitical law. She knew that as soon as she touched him, she'd be transferring her uncleanliness to him as well. However, she was so desperate for healing that she risked breaking the religious law of her day in hopes of receiving some relief after 12 years. And he knew the moment that she touched him, yet he didn't condemn her for it, even though he had every right to do so. Instead, he asked, who touched me? See, this is where it gets interesting. He knew who touched him and why. He was God incarnate, right? He didn't have to ask, but he did. Why? What purpose did that serve? By asking who touched me, Jesus required the woman to humble herself completely, to admit that she had touched him, and to do so in a crowd of people who no doubt knew of her condition. She had to acknowledge that despite knowing that the law says she can't, she touched him anyway. Jesus, however, didn't require that to humiliate her. He did it to make a point. That everyone in the crowd knew that this woman was in perpetual nada. They knew she was unclean. They assumed her ailment was likely due to the curse of some hidden sin. As a result, they also knew just what kind of violation had taken place when she touched him. And that's exactly why he made her confess out loud. By humbling herself and admitting her violation of the law, she also admitted that she knew that Jesus was the only one that held the power over the law. Her confession shows that she knew that healing came from God. And by touching Jesus, she acknowledged him as God. She also acknowledged that healing came by his grace, despite what the law said. And by his grace, she was healed. And what happened next is ultimate. Upon her confession of touching him, Jesus simply answered, go in peace. Your suffering is over. He did not instruct her to the mikvah. He didn't withdraw himself to wash away and, and, and that he came from touching her. He simply took her disease, gave her healing in its place. He took her solitude and desperation and put it an end to her suffering. His healing of the unclean woman with the issue of blood was literal living out of what was about to happen to him on the cross, taking our and our uncleanliness and exchanging it for an end to our suffering. Rachel Held Evans says, when God became human, he wrapped himself in our blood and skin and bones. And his first order of business was to touch the ones that we would not touch, to fellowship in our sufferings and to declare once and for all that purity is not found in the body, but in the heart. 
See, there's this thing called the narrative. I'm going to invite the, the band to join me on stage. I want to end with this. This is what this thing called the narrative. There is a story that you and I tell. Whether it's the story of your family or the story of your faith, we all tell a story. Then there's the counter-narrative. This is the, another story that we tell, a, a new story, a story that bumps up against the old story. And this is how humanity has survived by telling these stories. And whoever tells the better story ultimately goes on to live another day. And so when we are faced with a narrative that is no longer our story, or at some point we become aware that the story that we're telling is wrong, we can get angry, we can criticize, we can complain, we can protest, we can march, or we can begin to tell a better story. And I believe that the only way we can really transform culture and people is by offering a counter-narrative, telling a unifying story, a story that we can all rally around. The narrative of our faith, traditionally, that women were less than because of the way they were born. That they should be hidden. They should wear shame and guilt. And they should remain quiet. The counter-narrative, that women display the image of God. And the image of God is found only when it's found both in men and women equally. That women are people and thus should be treated like that. The church needs to tell a better story. See, Jesus changed the narrative. Again, Rachel Held Evans says in her confession of an accidental feminist, says, I began to delve deeper into these passages, into the gospel story of which I am a part of. I saw with fresh eyes and heard with fresh ears that the good news of Jesus is good for all. Indeed, it is good news for women. I learned this not from a class in feminist studies, but from Jesus, who was brought into this world by a woman, whose obedience changed everything, who revealed his identity to a scorned woman at the well, who defended Mary of Bethany as his true disciple, even though women were prohibited from studying under rabbis at the time, who obeyed his mother, who refused to condemn the woman caught in adultery, who looked to women for financial and moral support, even after the male disciples had abandoned him, who said of the woman who anointed his feet with perfume that wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told. Who bantered with a Seraphonician woman, who talked theology with a Samaritan woman, who healed a bleeding woman, who appeared first before women after his resurrection despite the fact that their culture deemed, deemed them unreliable witnesses and who charged Mary Magdalene with the great responsibility of announcing the start of a new creation, of becoming the apostle of the apostles. I learned about equality not from Virginia Woolf, but from Junia, described in the New Testament as outstanding among the apostles. I learned it from Priscilla, who partnered with her husband to plant churches and teach famous apostles like Apollos. I learned it from Phoebe, a deacon, who may have been the first to read and explain the book of Romans. And I learned it about equality from Paul, who taught us that with the resurrection, something radically had changed. Not merely ontologically, but functionally in the relationships between slaves and masters, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rendering those whose identity was once rooted in hierarchy and division 
brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ instead, who put a radical gospel spin on the Greco-Roman household codes, breaking down the hierarchies so that slaves and masters, wives and husbands were charged with submitting one to the other with the humility of Jesus as their model, who taught that power was overrated and that service will be rewarded, who surrounded himself with women he called co-workers, teachers, and apostles, who managed the staggering influx of widows and women in the Christian community by providing guidelines to ensure that the Ephesian churches remained distinct from the pagan cults of the day, but who still expected trained women to prophesy and teach and lead. The narrative women in much of Christianity has been, because you're a girl, you can't. The narrative for women in much of the world has been, because of the way you were born, you're less than. You're perceived as guilty. Your createdness was made, has made you untouchable and unworthy to touch others. But here's the deal. I don't want to tell that story anymore because that's not my story anymore. I have three daughters, soon to be three women, that cannot carry the shame and guilt and limitations that because they were created that way, that instead they need to know that in Christ they are one, we are one, and that they were beautifully and fearfully made. And I want you to help me tell that story. I want this church to be part of a counter-narrative that Jesus was for women, that Jesus was for men, and that Jesus was for oneness and togetherness. Join me in prayer. God, heavy, heavy message to process, to think about. God, speak to our hearts. Let us know where where the story we've been telling is not the right story, is not your story. Let us help us show us a way to tell a better story. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your cross. The week that we celebrate your willing sacrifice to die in our place. For the next few days, as we process this story and our focus begins to narrow on this event that we celebrate resurrection, bring to light our blind spots where we haven't seen perhaps ways that we've oppressed or haven't given the right value or respect to. Show us where we've not treated others the way you commanded us to treat. Where you said to love others as we love ourselves. Love God, heart, soul, and mind. To love others. May we live that out together as one. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand and sing with me.